Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Ann Mank, Certified Financial Planner and CPA with the Ellen Becker Investment Group. We are located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building, and also in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building across from Winkies. And for our Florida listeners, we also have an office in the Bonita Springs area. If you're interested in learning more about our offices, including a virtual tour of each location, please visit our website at ellenbecker.com. On our website, you can put a face with the name because we have bios and videos for all our advisors. We also have a listing of all our current events, plus links to the past radio shows. So today on this show, we are going to talk about a specific demographic and how to help them on investing. So when I meet with a lot of my clients that are what we typically would put in the millennial bucket, I get one of two things. Usually it's, well, I haven't saved a thing. How do I start? Or I'm saving everything and I'm not enjoying life. And so today we have an author with us today. She has wrote a book called Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Her name is Erin Lowry, and she's very passionate about this subject, and her book is great. If you don't have a copy, you should definitely pick it up. But she has a lot of good nuggets in here about specifically for a millennial, how do you start investing? But even if you're not a millennial, there's a lot of good information in here. So with that, Erin, I would like to welcome you to, sh- to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. So how did you get started in this in the first place? How did this become a, you know, a true passion of yours where you're writing book after book? It's honestly a true millennial tale that it kind of started as first a blog and then a side hustle, which is <laughs> about the most millennial answer right? you can give. And for me, it, it really all began with the fact that I grew up in a very financially literate household. My parents were talking about money all the time from the moment I was a young girl all the way through now. And it was just normal in my family that you talked about money, not in a stressful way. It didn't create any arguments. It was just a matter of fact of life. And my parents were using quite real world examples to teach me and then my little sister about how to handle our money. And it really set us up in a way that I don't think even they could have predicted at the time. And I realized after I graduated college, I was living in New York City where I still live today. And all of a sudden it became very apparent how many of my friends did not feel the way I did about money. I was making $23,000 my first year in New York and I still felt very much in control. I felt broke, but I felt in control. (laughs) And I think it's really important to make sure that people have that sense of control. And my basic mantra is you have two options in life. Either you control money or money controls you. And it really became my mission to help other people feel that sense of control. And I didn't know how to start other than to begin a blog, which was BrokeMillennial.com, still exists. 
And I just started sharing stories about how my parents taught me about money, my own experiences now that I was in my early 20s at the time and just kind of trying to figure out how to navigate life and how that all worked out for everything from how to budget when you're making next to no money all the way up to, okay, I have a job with benefits now. How do I start a 401k? Right. And that, I mean, you are really lucky to have parents like that because I run into so many individuals who never had the education or never had the background to even know where to start. Um, Did you find that before you even started writing the blog or the book that people were coming to you for advice? No, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily the case because I wasn't talking about money a whole whole heck of a lot. It just was kind of a personal thing that I felt comfortable with. I had a light bulb moment at 23 years old. I was talking to a friend of mine who came from a fairly privileged background, and she was just expressing how stressed she was about money. And that was really a click moment for me, and I know how naive that sounds. But because I grew up in a household where it was normal and what you grow up around is normal to you, I kind of assumed everyone had parents who talked to them about money like this. And it was her expressing that angst, especially as a woman who had no student loan debt, came from a family with means, and she still felt this sort of complete, you know, she was just so stressed and overwhelmed about money. And I thought, I think I can help solve this problem by talking about it and talking about it in a way that was very different because I have a very unique background in that I didn't study business and finance. I didn't work on Wall Street. I'm not a financial planner advisor. And so I kind of approached it from more of a journalistic angle and started interviewing and talking to people and figuring out how to distill their knowledge into something that felt more palatable to your average millennial. And in this book, you're really talking about taking on investing. And one of the first things you tackle in here is just how do you know you're you're ready? So what are some of the things you look for? Or how do you know you're at that point where, okay, now I can worry about this investing thing and let me figure it out? That's a great question. And I like to call it putting on your financial oxygen mask, because there are certain things that you have to take care of before you are ready to level up and move on to investing. Now, there is one big caveat to this whole conversation that I think is always important to talk about, and that is retirement. Mm -hmm. And that if you have an employer match 401k, or if you're self-employed and you are putting money into a SEP IRA or a regular IRA or solo 401k, whatever it is, that is investing. A lot of people don't think of themselves as investors when they are putting money into retirement plans, Mm -hmm. but you are. And that's the type of investing that's a little easier to get into and something you should be doing. But the other things on this checklist include... First, goal setting. Sounds really basic, but it's actually much harder than you think. You need to make sure that you know why you're investing and what you're investing for, and you need to be ascribing specific numbers to your goals and why you want to be investing, because it's really going to dictate your overall choices on your investments. You need to have a budget, and I know people hate that word, so let's (laughs) rebrand it quickly to cash flow. How much money is coming in? How much money is going out? Without that piece of information, you cannot make a plan. You have to have that information on lock. You also need to have paid off high-interest consumer debt. So typically in that situation, we're talking about credit card debt. Now, when it comes to student loans, conversation is a little more nuanced. I know we're going to get into it a little bit later. Mm -hmm. That's also an entire chapter unto itself in the book. But there is a little bit of nuance there about whether you can be investing outside of retirement when you have student loans. And I also really think that you have to have a fully funded emergency fund before you start investing in taxable accounts, so those accounts outside of retirement plans, because things are going to go wrong. We know it's going to happen. 
and you don't want to have all of that money tied up in the market, you need to have some of it principally protected that you can get easy access to in order to cover any sort of emergency. And I like the th minimum three months, preferably six months worth of basic monthly living expenses in your emergency savings fund. And another small addition to that is also considering having your short-term financial goals covered. So you don't want to be investing for things that are really one to three years away, but also if there's an upcoming large expense, I moved recently, that's really expensive, <laughs> then you want to have money set aside for that too. So it is making sure you have goals and you understand those goals. It is making sure that you understand what cash, where your cash is currently going, both in and out making sure that you have that money set aside for an emergency if you need to. And you mentioned basic. What is your definition of basic when you're trying to save for an emergency fund? So I like to think of it as if you have to pare your life all the way down and take out all the extras, what's the money that you need? So lights are kept on, debts are paid because you don't want to default. You don't want this to wreck your credit. You want to be able to pay your mortgage or your rent. If you have an auto loan, you want to be able to make sure transportation is covered. And if you don't, then however you get around, make sure you have money for that. Food on the table. And I also like to consider that if you have children or pets, because pets are often left out of this conversation and they have emergencies too, mm -hmm. you want a little bit extra of a buffer in case something goes wrong with one of them. Perfect. I like that definition because a lot of times people say or think they have to replace their entire salary. And that's really not the case. It's just making sure you have enough for that time frame to make, you know, just make sure everything keeps running while you're there. You can, you know, skip the coffee if you need to, but at least you have a roof over your head and you can get to where you need to. And then the last thing Absolutely. you mentioned, and, and the last thing you mentioned too was the, um, you know, anything in the next one to three years, make sure that that's liquid or that is something that you're not putting in the market. So you don't have that risk of it going, you know, volatility. Um, so I love that. And I, and you mentioned the student loans. So I definitely want to touch on that. So what I think we'll do is we'll take a short break, and then when we come back, we'll revisit student loans and try and tackle that, because I know that's high on the list for a lot of millennials. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Sense. My name is Ann Mank. I'm a certified financial planner and CPA with Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today we have author Erin Lowry with us today, and we are talking about her new book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, a Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. And we're talking about money matters and education, especially for the millennial group. And when we last uh, left the last segment, we were talking about just getting that foundation in place, making sure that you have kind of all the ducks in the row before you begin investing. And one of those big areas that I know I get a lot when I, um, a question that I get a lot when I'm working with my clients in this age is, well, I have these student debts and I have no idea. Do I invest? Do I pay the student loan down? I actually just had a conversation with a client this morning about that. And so you talk about that a lot in your book. So Aaron. When it comes to student loans, what are some of the fundamental things we should be thinking about or some of the tips that you usually recommend? Well, this was the number one question I was excited to ask people when I was interviewing them for the book because it's what I got asked all the time. And I'm not an investing <laughs> expert. I always think it's important to say I'd like to consider myself the translator. So I went out and interviewed a bunch of very smart, far more experienced people and was able to distill that knowledge down into the book. 
And by and large, almost everyone, with one exception, came back with the same stat, and that was 5% interest rate. And what I mean by that was if you have a 5% interest rate or higher on your student loans, then it just made more sense for you mathematically and financially to focus on paying down the student loan debt first before focusing on investing. Again, with the exception being retirement, you definitely should be taking advantage of an employer-matched 401k, and if you don't have that option, putting money away into an IRA. So you want to be focused a bit on retirement, which is investing, but outside of that, 5% interest rate kind of being your cutoff. Now, if it's under 5% interest rate on your student loans, then, all right, well, maybe if you have both the risk tolerance and the debt tolerance to emotionally handle investing in tandem with paying down your debt, then it could work out in your favor. But I also think it's important to point out no one ever seems to regret paying off their student loan debt quickly, and that is a guaranteed return on your money. <laughs> so oftentimes it does make more sense to prioritize that over trying to invest in taxable accounts, but everybody's a little bit different. Do you find that individuals they know they have student loans, but they really don't know anything about it. And so I run into some people who are, yeah, I know it's out there. I, I think I pay a monthly amount, but I have no idea what the interest rate is. I have no idea how long it's going to take me to pay, pay this. Or they might have multiple um, loans that are out there. Um, so for me, a lot of times when I'm working with individuals, it's really just explaining what they have. And that kind of goes back to your goals of you just need to know what your financial goals are. Where's your cash flow coming and where's your cash flow going? Um, is student loans as much of a burden for millennials as we hear in the marketplace? Because a lot of times what I hear in the news is, you know, they're just it's a huge burden. They can't get, you know, going. They're staying at home because they have these loans to pay. What are your thoughts on that? Obviously, a lot of my insight is a bit anecdotal with my own experience as well as the experience of my friends and then people, of course, that I communicate with while running my company. But, yeah, it's a pretty big problem. And I think that it does really slow down a lot of people's ability to move on to next phases in their financial life, whether that is becoming a more aggressive investor or whether that's buying a home or getting married or starting a family. I mean, it certainly is a barrier for a lot of folks. And I think a big part of that problem is the fact that we don't talk early enough about the ramifications of taking on student loan debt, and we don't encourage people to actually run the numbers where mm -hmm. I'm just going to use in my own life, for instance, my husband is a public school teacher, and I don't feel like anyone, when he went to undergrad, talked him through what the actual return on his investment was going to mm -hmm. be. If you're taking on tens of thousands of dollars for an undergrad degree, but you're going to go into a job that's notoriously underpaid, that's going to be a huge monkey on your back. And I think that happens to a lot of people. They just don't really look at the long view of how much money they are taking on in debt compared to how much they're actually going to be earning in the future. And I'm, I appreciate that you say that because a lot of people don't think of it as a return on investment at all. Um, so I'm talking with a lot of parents who have kids going to school, and it's really you need to sit down with them and say, okay, we're going to go to this school. This is about what it's going to cost you in loans. What do you think you're going to do when you get out of there? And what do you think an average income is that you're going to earn? And then just run the numbers backwards. Can you pay that back in 10 years? Because you don't want this over your head for, you know, 20, 25 years. 
you want to be able to pay it off in five or 10 years if possible and just running those numbers so that they can see, you know what, if my anticipated income is 25000 a year, I'm never going to pay off this loan I'm incurring. So I think and that's a great point. are you going to have trouble paying it off, but you're going to have an immensely difficult time balancing in other financial goals, which is really kind of exacerbates this feeling of being stagnant and making it feel like, well, you can't move out of mom and dad's, or even if you have moved out of mom and dad's, you can't have much of a life outside of just going to work, paying your bills. There's not a whole lot of extras. Or in the even worst case scenario, people incur an immense amount of credit card debt mm-hmm. because they still want to have a life. Are you seeing a lot of credit card debt with this group? Um, Are they becoming a little bit more credit card savvy, or do you still see them using that as the fallback and that they are carrying balances? It's really a mixed bag because of the Card Act of 2009, which I think is a really interesting Mm -hmm. almost cutoff within the millennial generation of people who are more likely really to be contending with credit card debt earlier on in their lives. And also, I've talked to so many people who didn't understand how credit cards worked when they got them. So they Mm -hmm. didn't really get that if you charged $600 in a month, but it said minimum due $25, -hmm. that you should have paid the full $600, not just the $25. Because frankly, (laughs) the credit card statements are a little bit misleading, especially when you don't know how to read one, which certainly is a bit intentional. Right. (laughs) But I would say if you look at the Card Act of 2009 and the fact that college students after that point really didn't have such easy access to credit cards. So wow. it did. you did start to see a drop happen for people who are dealing with credit card debt right, out of, right in and then out of college. But on the flip side, it made it much harder for them to actually get access to credit cards once they graduated <laughs> because they had little to no credit history. So it was an interesting double-edged sword. Right. And I, and I you know, it goes all back to that education because if you don't understand how credit works, that you don't understand how loans work, if you don't understand how paying back your credit card works and the fact that if you pay the minimum, it's going to take you 36 years to pay back, you know, $600. Um, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's a long time and you pay a lot of interest on there. If you don't have that foundation, you know, you're out just trying to f- figure it out. And you also mentioned retirement plans and the importance of taking advantage of retirement plans. I think that's another area where people aren't taking advantage of, you know, the free money that employers are willing to give you, especially if you have a 401k with a match. Or even if you don't have a match, just the ability of having the money come out of your paycheck so that it goes into a retirement plan for you. Um, So when it comes to retirement plans, I think there's just a lack of education. And so what are some of the key things that you want individuals to know when it comes to retirement plans and what it means to them and how to take advantage of it? Well, I would say first for people who are traditionally employed, you do need to understand what the offer is from your employer. So do you have access to a 401k or a 403b through your employer? And if so, do you get a match? And what does it take to actually get the full match? Because sometimes there's like tricky little rules Mm -hmm. like, oh, we match you at 100% (laughs) up to 4% and then on 50% for the next 2%. And you're like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. So making sure that you understand exactly how much to put in in order to get the full match. 
And then in addition to that, you also need to understand your vesting schedule. And I think that kind of freaks people out sometimes too because they might hear like, well, if you leave the company um, at year three, you don't get to take any of your contributions from the employer. But people don't always hear that correctly and might feel like, oh, then I don't get to take my money either. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand you always get to take the money that you put into your 401k. But sometimes there are restrictions about the employer match. And they're not always willing to hand over the money if you leave after a certain period of time. So also understanding that term vesting schedule and when you're fully vested in your retirement account. But to also go to the more specific situation, you need to make sure the money's actually invested. Mm. And I've heard so many horror stories, and especially when I was doing research for Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, there were multiple advisors that I spoke with who had had clients who were reaching retirement age, had been diligently putting money into a retirement plan, call up to ask, hey, how much money is in there? And come to find out it's maybe $300,000, which sounds like a lot of money, mm-hmm. but not if you're trying to retire. And it should have been into you know a million or a million and a half, but they were never actually invested. They were essentially just saving the money into the account. It wasn't actually an investment vehicles. So I think it's incredibly important to talk about actual investments. In my own experience, I remember logging into my first 401k plan and I was confronted with this huge list of options for investments. <laughs> I had no idea what any of it meant, so I just clicked out and kind of ignored it for a little bit. Yep. And that's really common. And I like to bring up target date funds and there are certainly pros and cons. It's mm-hmm. certainly a one size fits all solution for something that needs to be uniquely tailored to you, but at least it gets you invested. And the fees are a little bit higher. You do need to know that. Mm-hmm. But it ensures that your money is actually invested. And eventually, as you become a stronger investor, you can always go back and retool it and make it a more unique and tailored portfolio to yourself. Yep. So it sounds like the most important thing is is start asking questions and understanding what your particular plan has to offer instead of thinking that somebody's taking care of it for you because they really aren't. Your provider or your employer is providing this to you, but it's your responsibility to know how much you're putting in, where you're putting it, what the benefits are, um, understanding you know what risk you're taking within your 401k or your, uh, your retirement plan. And the other thing to note too, um, before we go to our next break, is a lot of times when I'm talking to individuals, they think this is free money for them, but it's not. It is something that should be set aside for retirement. It's not an extra money bucket that they can start pulling from. Granted, they can, but that's not what this is set aside for. It really is for retirement purposes. It is, and you don't want to have to pay the penalties if you pull it out early. That's the other huge thing, of course. Or you're no, you're never going to get that time back. If you've had 10 years investing it, you're never going to get that 10 years back on that money you invested. Can, yeah, and that's a great point. I think the time factor, and that's one thing I always try to emphasize with investing, especially with retirement, is the younger that you start, even if it doesn't feel like a ton of money, mm-hmm. you can put a lot less in and using time to your advantage and compound interest still have a really great nest egg in the end compared to if you wait 15 or 20 years, even if you try to double down your contributions, right. it certainly doesn't mean you're going to catch up. Yep, exactly. All right, well, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will finally start talking about the basics of investing. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to 
Money Sense. I'm Ann Mank, Certified Financial Planner and CPA with the Ellen Becker Investment Group. And today I have my guest, Aaron Lowry, who is an author who is trying to educate and help the millennial group when it comes to money and then also investing. And so we've talked a little bit about how do I know if I'm ready to invest? We talked about some of the barriers or things that might be stopping us from investing, including student loans and not understanding our retirement plans or what our employer offers for us. So next, I want to dig into investing. And so with this, Aaron, I think I'm just going to let you take it away because you have a whole book on investing. And I know a lot of it has some good nuggets on just definitions and education and tips. So where would you like to start? Well, I will say you've mentioned definitions, and that is one of the earliest chapters in the book because I do feel like the jargon of the stock market and investing in general is what keeps a lot of people intimidated and out of the market. So it's incredibly important that part of your process of getting ready to invest is the actual education piece and also recognizing that with investing, a lot of times it's like I liken it to math class. I did not love math. It was never my favorite subject in school. And I remember so distinctly sitting in an algebra class and thinking, I have no idea what he just asked. And it was because he was using terms like coefficient. I'm like, I don't know what coefficient means, so it's really hard for me to solve this problem without that information. Just like with the stock market, you Mm -hmm. have to understand the language in order to feel both empowered and like you're ready to take it on. It takes a little bit of time, definitely takes some reading, but anyone really can do it. Right, exactly. And a lot of times, you know, when I'm sitting with clients, it's the first maybe 30 minutes of our conversation is just explaining what all this means. Even things that I, I've i now taken for granted, but just what's the difference between a stock and a bond? And a lot of times I use stories or I use pictures to kind of help relate it to something that they understand, because I think that's an important part. It's, yeah, we're defining it, but how does that you know, what does that mean to you? When have you experienced something similar in the past? And I know that you in your book use a lot of different stories as well. So I think that helps kind of communicate that. Um, but when we're investing, so, okay, I'm, I'm a person I've been listening saying, okay, I, I've checked all the boxes. I'm ready to invest. Where does a person start? I think this is one of the hardest parts is actually knowing where to turn. And part of it depends on what type of investor you want to be and Do you want to hire somebody that's dedicated to you? Do you want to have a CFP? Do you want to have a financial advisor? Maybe you want to use a robo-advisor or even one of the micro-investing apps. Or perhaps you just want to go the discount brokerage route, which, by the way, sounds much sketchier than it actually is. I kind (laughs) of hate that term. But when you go the discount brokerage route, you're doing more of the do-it-yourself investing as opposed to having perhaps a more dedicated full-service wealth management brokerage or dedicated advisor helping you. So that's really one of the early steps is figuring out who you want to turn to for actually putting your money into the market. It's going to really depend on an individual. It could depend on the amount of assets that you have. In some cases, you might not have the option to start without a minimum. Sometimes that's for working with specific advisors. Sometimes that's even for trying to buy, let's say, an index fund. Sometimes those investments have a minimum initial investment of maybe $1,000 or $3,000 or $10,000, and you do not have that money starting out. So I think that's one of the first pieces. I always recommend people take customer service for a test drive, Mm. or if you're wanting to work with a dedicated financial advisor, 
treat it like dating, <laughs> test out a couple different yep. people, go on a couple different meet dates, see what you think. You want to make sure that you're feeling respected and heard. Mm-hmm. You don't want to feel like anyone is pushing a product on you. You want to understand exactly how they get paid. And it's also best to work with a fiduciary instead of mm-hmm. somebody who just adheres to the suitability standard. And fiduciary means they have your best interest at hearts and are essentially legally obligated to do that instead of just what is not harmful for you. And you mentioned a, a couple of different ways, the robo-advisor, those micro-investing sites, um, working with somebody or the discount. Can you just, do you have a good way of explaining what the differences are between each one of them? Well, I think it's easier to read it. I will be honest, but I will attempt <laughs> to break it down. <laughs> I know, so. I just asked you like a huge question there, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would say for starters, a lot of people, when they just originally hear the term investing, they are thinking of almost that, I would say, even archaic, you know, Gordon Gecko style form of investing, <laughs> which is really not how it is for a lot of folks. You do have your full service wealth management type companies and brokerages that are really looking for people that maybe have a million or half a million dollars net worth in order to get started. Oftentimes you're paying your advisor what's known as assets under management. So often it's a percentage of your portfolio as a fee, maybe 2%, be kind of pretty common. And for a lot of folks just starting out, that's a bit inaccessible Mm -hmm. in terms of both the minimum in order to get access, as well as it just might not be what you're interested in right at the beginning. The discount brokerages, and I'm just going to name some names here for context. This isn't an endorsement of any particular company, but I think it's just helpful to hear. So you might be thinking about a Vanguard or a Fidelity or even a Charles Schwab that enables you as an individual person to set up a brokerage account and actually go and buy, say, index funds, mutual funds, or ETFs and get your money into the market that way. You could do individual stock picking as well, although I'm not advocating for that. (laughs) I think that takes a lot of research, a lot of time in Mm -hmm. order to have an actual well-diversified portfolio. Even the professionals do not always outperform the market when you're looking at individual stock picking. And then when you're thinking about a robo-advisor, I think that that can kind of be a middle ground between do-it-yourself, discount brokerage-style investing and having a dedicated financial planner because they do simulate a lot of things for you in the sense of you start by usually answering a questionnaire to figure out your risk tolerance. They ask you about your goals, and that kind of information helps determine how exactly you should be investing your money. A lot of times the robo-advisors do automatically rebalance your portfolio. What I mean by that is let's say that when you start investing, you decide that you want to have 70% of your investments in stocks and 30% of them in bonds. But let's say your stocks did really, really well this year, and now 80% of your money is in stocks and only 20% of it is in bonds. So you might need to sell some of your stocks and buy some more bonds to rebalance that back out. It's kind of an overly simplified version (laughs) of explaining it. But sometimes the robo-advisors will handle that for you. They might do tax loss harvesting which is a very complicated mm-hmm. idea. Yeah, right. For tax advantages. I'm not going to try Come to talk to me if you want thing. more information on that. Yeah. But basically, let's say they, they just make sure that you're minimizing your taxes. I think that's just a really easy way yep. to try to explain it. And you know, you have to keep in mind that then a robo-advisor is going to cost a little bit more than doing, doing it yourself with a discount brokerage. You're going to pay more in fees. And certainly if you hire a professional, you're going to be paying more in fees too. Mm-hmm. And every dollar you pay in fees is a dollar less that's compounding for future you. 
Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't hire someone, and I'm not saying you shouldn't use a robo-advisor, but if you are going to go that route, you absolutely 100% have to make sure that the value mm-hmm. is there, that you are getting a return on the fees that you're paying. Mm-hmm. And you, you certainly can, but you just need to actually be critical about that and making sure. And then finally, I will say the investing apps, often referred to as micro-investing, feels like a really easy way to get into the market because the barrier is quite low. Oftentimes, you just need a couple of bucks to start investing, and the fees are often something around a dollar a month or $2 a month. I live in New York City. I cannot do a load of laundry for a dollar. So it sounds like a really good value proposition that I could be investing for only a dollar fee. But mm-hmm. the problem is, if you're only investing a couple of dollars a month, that $1 fee is eating up all of your returns and maybe even then some. Mm-hmm. So I like to have the rule of thumb that you should be putting in at minimum $25 a month. I would say even up to at least $50 a month if the micro-investing app is how you are electing to start investing for yourself. Got it. And one of the things, too, that you mentioned was that if you're going to pay fees, make sure you're receiving value for it. If you're receiving the value, you know, you just need to make sure you're justifying the fees that you get. One of, you know, one of the values that you can get from actually working with an advisor versus doing it yourself is handling the anxiety about market mm-hmm. fluctuations. What are some of the anxieties that, that people see or, or millenniums are feeling when there's ups and downs in the market? I definitely don't think it's unique to us that everyone really feels some level of anxiety when you see the market go up and down. Even the professionals are going to feel some type mm-hmm. of way about it because it doesn't feel good to <laughs> no, see not at all. all of a sudden go down. <laughs> Could be tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands in some more extreme cases. So I think that, yes, you're right. One of the definite advantages of working with a dedicated professional is that they can help kind of manage your anxiety and almost protect you from yourself. Mm -hmm. Because if you are starting to panic a little bit, one, they can talk to you about it. And two, they can be like, really? I don't think we should be selling this right now. I understand why you're panicking, but let's look at the past performance. Let's look at what has happened when it has gone down in the past, how it always comes back around. Probably not a good idea to sell. They can kind of check you a little bit in that manner. So if you're somebody that does tend to be highly anxious and you think as an investor you're likely to maybe have a knee-jerk response every time the market does a dip, then working with somebody really could be a good value for your money. Exactly. And that's, you know, one of the things that we really try to work with with our clients is we understand that they could be working with a lot of different products and people, and we understand that they are paying for our services. So one of the things we do do is we make the phone calls saying, you know what, this is what's happening in the market. And so if you're working with somebody, they should be walking you through, explaining, educating you, making or helping you make decisions on what we should be doing at this time, but really putting that plan in place so that you're managing your anxiety because there's a lot of studies out there that show people lose money on their investments because of emotional choices they make, not necessarily the investments they're in. So we'll just take one more break. And then when we come back, we'll just add some final thoughts and then also let you know how you can find Erin if you want to follow up and learn more things from her. So we'll be right back. Welcome back to Money Sense once again. My name is Ann Mank. I'm a certified financial planner and CPA with Ellen Becker Investment Group. And we are having a wonderful conversation right now with Aaron Lowry. We are talking about millennials and how they should be investing, what things they should be thinking about. 
So parents, if you've been listening, feel free to send this link to your kids because it's been a lot of great information. You can find that on our website at ellenbecker.com. And then you can also share with your kids as well some of Aaron's information. So Aaron, how can people find you if they want to get some more information? Well, you can go to my website, which is BrokeMillennial.com. I am on Instagram at BrokeMillennialBlog, and I am very active, so I will respond to direct <laughs> message, as well as on Twitter at BrokeMillennial. And you can contact me if you just hit the contact button on BrokeMillennial.com, my website. It will go straight to my inbox as well, so I'll definitely hear from you that way. And my books, the first one is Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, and the second, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money, are both available wherever books are sold and also hopefully at your local library oh i'll have to check that when i go to my library if not i'll get them on that (laughs) yes please have it requested if it's not there i like people having free access to financial knowledge oh that's awesome thank you all right so as we wrap up we've been talking about a lot of things when to invest what's your foundation to invest um you know as as millennials are are thinking this you know, a lot of times it's just like we were talking about lack of education or just lack of experience. Um, what is, you know, if you just had to boil it down to make sure you do this and then do this and then this, what, what are kind of the top three things that you would hope that millennials will take away from your book? I think the first is realizing that it is a true misconception that investing is just for the wealthy. Sometimes people seem to think that that's almost codified in their belief about investing in general and about the stock market. And really, at many different income levels, you can be getting into the market. And I kind of think of it as a wealth equalizer. We, A lot of us have the opportunities to build real meaningful wealth and even generational wealth if we get into the market. But in order to do that, we also have to educate ourselves. And you need to be knowledgeable about what you're doing and not just do it because you heard that it's a good idea. You need to be making sure that you're making decisions and investments that align with how you believe. I think your ethical, moral, religious beliefs are all an important factor there, as well as you know your time horizon, when you need access to your money, the risks that you're comfortable and willing to take. And that all really comes back to goal setting and just taking time to sit with yourself and actually think through what do you want to achieve both financially and for your life, and how can you allow money to actually do some of the work for you. When you invest it, it does help you. It does compound. It does grow. All good things to think about. And even when you're talking about you know the goals for the money, it's important to – I mean, I don't know how many listen, listeners out there – when was the last time – you looked at the last maybe three months of expenses on your credit card just so you could see where it was going. I mean, that's just a good exercise for anyone saying, you know, where is my cash flow going? What am I spending it on? Is it, is there a gym subscription that I haven't been going to for six months? Do I really need it? Oh, I signed up for this monthly membership online. Is that still going? When was the last time I logged into that site? So just being mindful of where you're spending money in the first place And then I think by tying that with goals, if you're mindful with when you're spending money around and then you know what goals you're trying to hit, I don't think it's as hard as it, you know, we have in our mind. A lot of times we make it harder than it needs to be just because we're scared of it. It's numbers. You know, it's 
it's something that we've been taught to be afraid of, but there's really nothing you do on a daily basis that doesn't involve money. And so if you don't know or understand what's going on and you don't, that's one thing. But if you're not taking the time to understand, you know, that's really where you start falling behind and really not doing it. And, you know, just the fact that you mention it's for everyone. Everyone can invest. And and what you mentioned before about retirement, retirement plans, that's investing. Um, one thing we also talked about uh, off air was the fact that these millennials aren't that young anymore. <laughs> We're yep. getting kind of old here. <laughs> so what are some of the things that as millennials are transitioning into their 40s, if you can believe it, what are some of the things that they should be thinking about or start educating themselves on as they hit that transition? I would say a big thing is, of course, if you haven't started investing yet, you absolutely have to. It's really the only way you're going to be able to achieve financial freedom and get yourself to a place where you can retire if that's something that you choose to do. And for the people on the younger end of the demographic, and then, of course, to Gen Z, like start as early as you can, even if it feels like an inconsequential amount. It's really not. It's compounding and growing for you. And please get started and let it do that. And the final thing that I like to hit on is this idea that life doesn't tend to get less complicated. <laughs> and I think a lot of people, especially in the older bracket of the generation, I'm pretty in the middle. I'm turning 30 in just about you know four weeks here, so I'm kind of middle of the gen. But... As you age, you tend to do things like get married, maybe buy a home, possibly have some children. That all comes with different types of expenses. Also, medical things can pop up, different emergencies can happen. Maybe you need to help take care of your parents. Mm -hmm. These are all financial factors that we need to realize could make it harder in the future for us to be able to continue investing or to continue aggressively pursuing our goals. So if you haven't laid that foundational habit of starting early, being consistent about it, it's really easy to keep putting it on the back burner. And that's why starting when you're young, even if it's a little amount, really does help. Because if you wait till you're older, while you might be earning more money, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean you have more discretionary income to put into the market. I think I hear another book being developed with this conversation. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> book number three on the way. <laughs> well, Erin, I wanted to thank you for taking your time to talk about this because a lot of times when we have money conversations, we really do talk more about the older generation. But it's really important to include the millennials in the conversation so that they lay the good foundation when they can so that they can have the future that they look for. So. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. It's been wonderful talking with you. Well, don't forget Money Sense airs Saturday from 2 to 3 and Sundays from 12 to 1. As always, we hope that we have made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Thank you to all our clients who are listening. I know you have a lot of choices, so we do appreciate the opportunity to serve you. And at Ellen Becker, before we plan, before we advise... Before we invest, we also listen. So please visit us at ellenbecker.com for more information. And don't forget to pick up your copy of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money by Aaron Lowry. It's definitely a good read and worth looking into. So thank you so much for your time and have a great rest of your day.